Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 122, End of an Era. Here we are, finally, the season finale, which, just to give you a heads up so if you feel let down by the lack of razzle-dazzle and new content, I'm going to be trying to tie together the 121 previous episodes that have comprised over two years' worth of content on this episode. So it might be a little ramshackle, but I figured I'd take a stab at giving an overarching meaning to everything that I've covered up to this point. Just a little way to pause and take stock before moving on to what will come later. And when I say later, I do mean that as I'm taking a little inter-season break. Three months and I'll be back up with episode 123 and the real deal Great Depression. Not just a simple stock market crash, but a full-blown breakdown of the existing order. Originally, I had envisioned a quick breeze through of the 1920s to set the table for the much more intensive 1930s, which, by the way, I still expect to be the bulk of the series. I figured back in 2019 when I started writing that if my story would really get going with the damage done by the Great Depression and the Pandora's box that it opened, then I'd have to give context to the world it brought to a close. Along the way, I discovered that the world of the 20s had far more to do with the start of World War II than what the popular histories usually let on. I will get right out ahead and conjecture that is because these were not glorious years, as you also now well know. Whereas the years of the 30s were dominated by a whirlwind of history's greatest monsters, the 20s were a decade dominated by the liberal democracies. The good guys. It's hard to see through the smoke of what came after, but the UK, US, and France were seen at the start of the decade as the hegemons. They had won World War I, and there were no challengers in which to stop them, which circa 1919 was perfectly true. And if they had the will, this trio of powers could have pressed their will on the rest of the world. But it didn't happen, and that's been the crux of this season. Why couldn't the Entente create a new world order that the combined United Nations of the world would be able to forge after World War II. And yes, I know that the New World Order established after 1945 wasn't perfectly stable itself, and it wasn't permanent, just like the one we've lived in since the end of the Cold War hasn't been. But the one forged after 1919 was especially flimsy, as we've all come to know and love. It was a decade stuck between two worlds, with the big winners clinging to their pasts, while the losers and even the smaller winners struggling to let go and begin again with exciting new ideologies. But that's all terribly broad. The point of this episode is to recap where the world stood at the end of 1929, approximately thereabouts, and what would be lost in the ensuing maelstrom. The first casualty of the 1920s was the great brush with liberal democracy. Victory in war creates legitimacy, and World War I up to that point was the most high-stakes war of all time. The forces of militant monarchism, dare I say authoritarianism, had been staked through the heart. The empires which wielded power across Europe were laid low, their dynasties never to rise again. The natural move seemed to be adopting the ways of the victorious governments, which was not expected at the outset of the Great Conflict of 1914. There was no plan for it. For example, many placed their geopolitical bets on the ironclad discipline of the German army to triumph. Their general staff was just so professional, their nation just so well organized, that they were bound to win. Unfortunately, those bets went bust when it turned out that in a scientific war, 
the advantage went to those who could marshal superior material resources. And cut off from the world by an ironclad blockade, the Germans and their allies could only fall back on their own limited resources and what they could loot from their conquests, the last of which were never grand enough to deliver the self-sufficiency that would later become the obsession of the next generation of aggressors. The governments who truly based their legitimacy on popular will won out, and they became the shapers of the post-war world. Japan, for example, grasped very quickly that its empire now existed in a world dominated by the liberal democracies, and fitfully that nation's elites moved to adapt its politics to fit in the same mold. Not uniformly, mind you, their military never accepted the embracing of Western-style politics, and their dying clique of oligarchs, the Genro, were reluctant to give up their privileged positions. But party politics advanced there in the 1920s nevertheless. Not perfect reflections of the West, but close enough facsimiles. The rise of party politics in Japan would not just play favorably to Western sensibilities when it came to diplomacy, it would satisfy a rest of domestic population. Japan had already been focused on westernizing anyway, and its citizenry was always opinionated. But the spread of materialism in Japan and mass communication to make everyone aware of that materialism created a new set of expectations. Which was exactly what happened in the West when capitalism and industrialization first spread. For, but for them, it occurred on an accelerated timeline. A timeline that didn't allow for the deliberately stodgy government of Japan to evolve or reform itself properly. Liberalism rode high in the 20s, but the mechanisms of government still offered concentrated and distinctly undemocratic authority to take control, should the mood of the nation's elites prefer it. And it wasn't as if Japan's democracy had the backing of the all-powerful-on-paper emperor either. The Taisho emperor was incapacitated by the 1920s, and the ascension of his son, the Showa emperor Hirohito, did not change this. Hirohito had been a sheltered child, but the influence of conservative tutors and the attempt on his life convinced him to take a more active hand than his predecessors. And the defiance of the elected government did not suit him at all. The Meiji Emperor had perfected a system of distant power when establishing the monarchy in modern Japan. The Taisho Emperor had created a vacuum in power that resulted in the brief window for party politics to predominate, and it was the Showa Emperor who grew disenchanted with the squabbles and crises of the Japanese Diet. Hirohito was a man of the palace, someone distant from normal earthly affairs. He failed to see the benefit of popular politics, preferring instead that his will be carried out by reliable executors. He wasn't blind to the light-touch method exercised by the past two emperors, and he didn't seek to displace Japan's liberalism immediately. But he wasn't afraid to publicly push his opinions. He interfered in policy in ways unexpected by Japan's elites, and they were left befuddled on how to handle him. Really, there wasn't a legal means to handle him. He was the font of all power and authority in the country. It wasn't like they could tell him no. There were careful deliberations, careful maneuverings to achieve consensus, but as liberal Japan stagnated, the emperor was uninclined to shake up or reform it. And at the end of the day, it was his buy-in which would be necessary in order to achieve such a thing. And it just wasn't there. The West, for its part, took little notice of the subtleties of internal Japanese politics. They understood that during the 20s that Japan was moving into a more democratic direction, but didn't appreciate how fragile it was, or how it would really benefit them if it was encouraged. To the West, Japan was a frustrating other. To the British, it had been a useful counterweight to the Russians in East Asia. 
but that purpose had been served as of the fall of the Tsars, and power politics took precedence after that. Ideas of partnership didn't pass through the minds of the movers and shakers in Washington at all. Japan's empire was a regional one, but the United States was fearful it could be more. The Washington Naval Conference created a detente, but the anti-Japanese stance of the U.S. in Paris during the peace conference, and in its own domestic laws discriminating against Asians, had already poisoned relations between the two most important powers in East Asia. The Japanese had expanded their empire based on the idea of creating buffer zones to provide security to the home islands, which themselves in turn would need to be defended from outside attack. The only way to break the cycle would be to convince the Japanese that their security was no longer an open question, that it was guaranteed. The Japanese had been partially colonized by the West back in the middle 1800s, and that experience had induced a culture of suspicion that the Western powers were too clumsy and bigoted to recognize and overcome. The Washington Conference had come agonizingly close, but American antagonism relegated Japan to a second-class status that left it cooperative but resentful of its own weakened position. That isn't to say that the paranoia of the Americans was unfounded. Japan's ascent was fueled by relentless exploitation and aggression. But America presumed to imagine that was how Japan's outward policies would remain forever, that they could only be contained through pressure and the threat of force. And because of the reality that they were an Asian power, a non-Western power, the U.S. couldn't conceive that Japan would be able to establish a democracy capable of forming a genuine partnership with. They could work in tandem on occasion, but the conditions for mutual respect just weren't there. Coupled with American disinterest during the decade for any kind of foreign commitments, Japan was left adrift in East Asia diplomatically. It wasn't big enough to contest with the U.S., and the other powers were uninterested in getting too close to them. The all-important imperial security was based on the good graces of those who had over and over again displayed a low opinion of Japan. Its internal democracy, which had drifted to align with the Western model, steadily lost support among the nation's elites and many of its engaged citizens. A missed opportunity in every sense, as Western policy turned Japan's eyes towards self-sufficiency, and self-sufficiency entailed a bigger empire, which would become their quest in the 1930s. A similar thing happened in Italy, as Western indifference allowed their junior partner to fall prey early to the ideology that would define the 30s, fascism. Like Japan, the Italians were not held in high regard. They were a nation constantly engulfed in political chaos, and their pre-existing democracy could only hang together by taking as little responsibility as humanly possible. According to the other Western powers, Italy really wasn't suited for democracy. Its people were European, but of the least kind. Worse, their ability to project power is much less than the others, something that Japan at least had going for it. Italy was a nation too big to be a simple regional power, but too small to be a global one. Most everything about it just barely qualified the kingdom as a great power, although its resource base meant its economy would always be stunted compared to its peers, and ergo its military might and diplomatic influence remained lacking. When it came time to distribute spoils after World War I, Italy was discounted. Dalmatia didn't carry the same weight at the negotiating table as Alsace-Lorraine. Which, fair, it wasn't like Italy had to have all the conquests they were promised. It wasn't like they were the only guys disappointed by Versailles. A tactful thing to do, though, would have been to offer some kind of compromise, some kind of fill-up to ease the pain of territorial disappointment. What I'm getting at is, really, they should have been offered debt forgiveness. 
Italy had taken out debt that as a proportion of its economy was even more debilitating than what the other great powers had suffered. And the eventual rise of fascism was spurned by counter-revolutionary feeling provoked by the two red years that spanned from 1919 to 1921. And the protests and borderline uprisings themselves were sparked by the economic freefall that the nation entered almost immediately after the war. If that economic freefall, sparked by spiraling inflation, itself fueled by burdensome foreign debt, could have been arrested, then the worst possible scenario of fascism might not have come to pass. I'm not bold enough to predict the survival of Italy's political order as it was at the end of the war, but a man with no base of support like Benito Mussolini really didn't have to rise to power. And it wasn't like the West passively stood by and watched Italy's chaos subsume it either. During World War I, the UK had actively bankrolled Mussolini in his proto-fascist propaganda, not out of any grand plan, but more because he advocated Italy remains solidly with the Entente. And then in late 1921, with the March on Rome at hand, the British also turned to lend Mussolini organizational advice on how to best deploy his forces, assuming that they would have a firm friend in the form of a proper strongman. The messiness of a failed democracy would be given up on, and instead the UK would have a new, stable partner in the Med. The UK would never dream of sacrificing its own parliament under the same circumstances, but ones belonging to other nations, well, getting rid of them was perfectly acceptable. And yes, part of this willingness to throw the Italians by the wayside was due in part to the two years of socialist agitation that had swept the country's north. The fear in those two years was that Italy would become a satellite to Bolshevik Russia and a springboard for communism and the greater struggle being played out on the continent. But I'll be touching on that larger struggle of liberalism versus Marxism in a minute. Lesser powers, too, tried to accommodate liberal democracies. As Balkan states like Yugoslavia, Romania, and Bulgaria all saw their monarchies step back in favor of their representative governments. New states like Czechoslovakia, Poland, and the Baltic states all established governments on the Western model early on. But one by one, they all started falling to authoritarianism, with the exception of Czechoslovakia. The problems were numerous, as forming new states or incorporating conquests that were huge relative to pre-war borders is never really an easy task. For defeated powers like Austria and Hungary, disaster stemmed from vastly shrunken territorial bases, dislocating their economies. Suddenly, they weren't plugged into a larger network and suffered from it. Both nations saw their left wings defeated, and politics in both states lurched hard to the right as a consequence. In the victorious states of the region, a key question that was never answered was one on minorities. Even when the likes of Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, and Yugoslavia all enjoyed their democratic periods, the large minority populations never reconciled themselves to their new states. And given that the big promise coming out of Versailles was Wilson's guarantee of national self-determination, I can't really blame those minorities for being bitter at being relegated to second-class status in their new homes. The answer to address this would have been to limit the territorial gains of the victors and allow minority areas to remain in their home nations, or in the case of Slovakia, to be independent entirely, but that ship almost instantly sailed during the Paris Peace Conference. The ambitions of the victorious small states and their dismissal of local interests would have bitter consequences down the road. And then there was, of course, the case of Weimar Germany, which fitfully established a liberal democracy after a six-month bloodbath that saw the militarists and the far-right 
purge the heart of socialist activity in Germany. The resulting republic would lurch onwards through the 20s, loved by no one, and existing only as long as there wasn't a faction in the country who felt strong enough to have a go at taking it over themselves. This tendency was exhibited most strongly during the days of hyperinflation that resulted from the Ruhr crisis. The nation was ripe enough for the taking that the communists, who had been beaten down for years, and the Nazis, who were regarded as a regional, unseemly fringe group at the time, both seriously attempted to launch coups well beyond their powers. The idea was that the republic was so weak, all you had to do was kick it over. Neither attempt worked, but that was due to the weakness of the instigators, not the strength of the republic. A big reason why more established factions didn't take over was likely because they'd then be saddled with the full responsibility of rebuilding the nation. And unfortunately, nobody inside Germany had the answer. At the end of the day, the Entente and the American financial sector had to ride to the rescue, but their solution of steady American loans to Germany only served to address the symptoms. The underlying disease of economic weakness and the absence of political legitimacy remained which meant that when those establishment parties that dominated the government failed to head off a second economic disaster, the common people were far more inclined to vote outside the mainstream that had failed so often before. Alright, so there was no concerted effort at creating a systematic order between the great powers, at least nothing like what was seen after 1945. I can throw the blame onto the United States for abandoning the League of Nations idea that it itself had championed, and I'll get to that, but the failure also stemmed from the weakness of the Entente, the British and French. And when I say weakness, I mean a whole lot of things. The most glaring was the crisis of leadership in both nations. The French emerged from the conflict drained of manpower to rebuild the nation and economy, their debt was enormous, and their government unwilling to tax the upper classes the way other nations had done. Mostly because French politicians hailed from those same upper classes. In effect, the French government was politically paralyzed. They were unwilling to change how their society and economy operated, which led to unabated inflation. The one attempt to have a center-left coalition govern the country in the middle of the decade almost broke the country, as even the hint of socialist-influenced policy led the conservatives, business class, and the media sector they controlled to effectively boycott cooperating with the government until it fell and their already heavy debt raised the specter of the nation defaulting on it entirely, which would be a fatal blow to the idea of France as a world empire and the military hegemon of Europe. The only consistent way forward was presented by Raymond Poincaré, and that was beating the German pinata until the money came out. And beat it they did until driving their neighbor to crisis and the brink of revolution. France was saved just as much as Germany by the ensuing American loans that started pouring in during the back half of the decade. After all, much of that American money passed through the Germans on the way to France. And even though Foreign Minister Briand would work tirelessly to create a network of non-aggression and partnership commitments to safeguard French security, the country was never able to achieve the dream of simply being able to rest easy. Friendship with Germany was predicated on a quid pro quo relationship, one weighted in France's favor. Meanwhile, the desired formal alliance with the UK proved ever elusive. The Brits not terribly keen to saddle themselves with helping safeguard France's preeminence on the continent. And even in Europe, France could never nail together a proper security network that could last. 
The Central European states that feared German, Italian, and Hungarian aggression and revanchism certainly welcomed friendship, but only conditionally and when it suited their own ends. They greatly desired French protection, but didn't want to act as that country's brute squad to deal with Paris's rivals. The British were scarcely in a better boat. The UK continued its wartime coalition government into peacetime, but the conditions that made the Liberal-Conservative partnership a success had passed. The handful of years that David Lloyd George remained in power effectively made him the fall guy for the crises that gripped the UK during the first few years of peace. The severe recession of 1921, the failures of the Genoa Conference, and the outright disaster of the Shannock Crisis in Turkey saw Lloyd George navigate a geopolitical minefield in dismal fashion, leading him to be disposed of by his conservative partners and leaving his own political party ravaged so badly by division and defection to labor that it would never recover. The conservatives, for their part, settled into blissful mediocrity both at home and the world stage. At home, they defaulted to business owners at the expense of organized labor, while diplomatically they avoided commitments and tried to maintain the old illusion of British preeminence. Labor would twice knock them from power, but each time the delicate coalition they would form with the liberals would collapse in recrimination and disappointment. The brief windows of conservative opposition served more to cleanse the palate of the British electorate than anything else. And for both powers, this was the true start of their imperial overreach. They each had a mind-boggling collection of territories across the Eastern Hemisphere. And really, it's almost inconceivable in the modern day for nations of their size to have conquered so much land, even in an age when both had comparatively overwhelming technical and economic advantages. But decades of expansion finally came to a bloody denouement in 1919. Both nations carved up huge new territories on top of their existing empires, draping them under legalisms like mandates. The reality was that the British and French empires reached their apex after Versailles, and while their hidebound leaders refused to entertain the notion that anything might have been wrong, both would lay the groundwork for their declines. The French, always the weaker of the two, struggled to make use of what it had. Economic advantages came slowly, accepting closer possessions in North Africa, and the uniquely productive ones in Indochina. The vast areas under the control of the tricolor proved to be restive, with full-fledged guerrilla wars having to be fought in sub-Saharan Africa, Syria, and Indochina. These were massive distractions to a country whose gaze was supposed to be fixed upon Europe, and diverted the country's slender resources even as the metropole melted down. If anything, the British had even bigger problems coming out of their empire. They would end up during the 20s facing wars in Ireland, Egypt, Iraq, Afghanistan, and a series of paralyzing protest campaigns in India. The British lacked the resources to maintain both a navy to link the far-flung empire and an army to properly keep it under control. The traditional British practice was to divide and conquer, selecting local minorities, and giving them privileged positions in the colonial apparatus. The strategy had worked for a while, but it was only a matter of time before the larger groups that had been kept down began to assert themselves. The war in Ireland was a long time coming, and while the British kept it on paper as a commonwealth, both knew the reality was that the new nation would consistently work to drift away from the UK. India had seen some calls for greater autonomy, but it was only after the British rebuffed Indian aspirations towards more self-governance in the aftermath of World War I that the ball really got going. 
Every step of the way, the British failed to appreciate that India was growing its own leadership, its own elites, who aspired to be more than clerks for the Raj. Even limited devolution could have stabilized the Raj, but the UK government refused to budge. British officers on the scene in India acted brutally, and the white officialdom of the Raj guarded its powers. What was the nerve center of the empire in the east grew increasingly alienated, its domestic politicians forced to adopt ever more radical positions as the British dismissed more moderate reforms in humiliating fashion. It was a spiral never to be solved, and was slowed mostly by the ever-growing animosity between Hindus and Muslims among the Indian people. In the case of places like Egypt and Iraq, they had never been reconciled to British supremacy at all, and in both places, the British faced violent calls for their departure. But thanks to the UK's obsession with the Suez Canal and Iraqi oil, those demands were off the table. Britain would remain a public presence in both nations, ensuring that they would constantly suffer from instability. Another imperial obsession of the British was the looming fear of the Soviet Union. The rise of Bolshevism in Russia had created a new dynamic that the rest of the world found itself ill-equipped to confront, an actual socialist country based on Marxist principles. The unthinkable scenario of the late 1800s and the first two decades of the 1900s had been achieved. A proletarian revolution had succeeded. This set the stage for a confrontation between liberalism and communism. And while I can't say exactly that the communists came out of this first round the winners, liberalism was forced to make political concessions around the world that very nicely set the stage for the rise of fascism. The ideology of the victorious Entente, which usually I mean the UK and France, but here I'm including the US, Japan, and Italy, was based first and foremost on basic rights. Your school textbooks would probably emphasize things like freedom of speech and opinion, access but not the right to goods and services, freedom of religion, all that. Bill of Rights stuff. Political participation would be included in some capacity, though that could vary from place to place. The well-to-do could certainly expect full participation at the very least. But what usually gets left out of this narrative of liberal democracy's benefits was the emphasis on private property being sacrosanct. And while that includes smaller things like a person's home or their farm, uh, to the crafters of state policy, it really meant private businesses. Free enterprise was to be protected above all else, as commerce was seen as the source from which all prosperity and culture of a nation would derive. Then there came along the USSR, and in the physically largest nation in the world, there was a public challenge that all that private enterprise stuff was a bunch of bull. The way to the future was not on paper access to life spoons, but guaranteed delivery of them. The great age of industrialization had demonstrated that fortunes could be made, but the way upward among the classes could only be enjoyed by a slender handful, which was patently unfair and had to be corrected. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what drove the West into ignoring the dangers of fascism that only a few years into the 30s would materialize right in their faces. The revolution in Russia was never designed to stay in one place, and the Bolsheviks' own propaganda heralded the coming spread outwards. The Entente, weakened by war, did what they could to meet the new challenge. They intervened directly into the Russian Civil War, sending their own combat troops to attack and frustrate the Bolsheviks. They sent piles of weapons and supplies and money, enough to prop up the Russian whites far longer than their corrupt factions could have lasted on their own. 
the USSR was effectively blockaded, both economically and politically, as it languished as a pariah state. Even after the Civil War concluded, trade was limited, and the West contented itself with treating it as another resource colony, avoiding sending over the vast quantities of machine tools the Soviets coveted in order to restart their own industries. The USSR went unrecognized by much of the world, and their dealings and agreements with the major powers always carried with it the possibility that they'd be reneged upon at any time. The Soviet Union was not defeated, but it was contained in a pre-industrial trap that Stalin would resolve to break out of in dramatic and devastating fashion during the 30s. The example of the revolution also set off challenges to liberalism elsewhere, challenges that were to be confronted with repression and force that revealed where the priorities of the liberal order rested. In Germany, the rise of the KPD and other far-left groups roused everything from the moderate socialists on down to the monarchists to rally around the Free Corps, which left Germany in the grips of the right for much of the Weimar Republic's existence, as well as created an entire post-Free Corps subculture of militant reactionaries who would coalesce into an underground army on the fringes of German society, which, yes, would in turn throw its support one day behind the Nazi party. In Italy, the red two years brought to the fore protests, strikes, and takeovers that, as I described earlier in the episode, went unaddressed by the government, and which opened the door to the aggressive fascists emerging as the champions of capital. More so than human rights, the former liberals of Italy opted to defend the existing social order, which included the defense of the money class's property. In Hungary, the Entente intervened directly, with the French providing a safe zone from the communist government there for Admiral Horthy and his followers, while the Romanians and Czechs sent in their soldiers to smother the revolution. The French were quick to change their own election laws after the Herriot government fell in order to block the communists from succeeding at elections. The British conservatives created a minor Red Scare to cudgel the Labour Party, and the U.S. had a full-blown Red Scare mixed with a nationwide wave of race riots, out of fear of the ideas being spread around the world. In China, the anti-imperialist KMT under Sun Yat-sen would make common cause with the communists, but under Chiang Kai-shek, the Kuomintang would tack hard right and embrace liberal values like free enterprise and the respect of property, just under Chinese management and not foreigners, the aim of which was both to enrich China and to head off a communist revolution there. In effect, by the time of the Great Crash of 1929, the world had, in the most generous estimation, entered an exhausted kind of equilibrium. It wasn't an equilibrium based on long-term potential, just that every party had gone through enough trauma that grand outward ambitions had to take a backseat while everybody took a breath. The UK was trying to hold together its empire, France was settling into a bunker mentality in Europe, Germany focused on just getting through the day, Italy on building its self-sufficiency, Japan grappled how to finalize the security of its empire. The USSR was entering a long period of internal development that would destabilize but also industrialize the nation. And the United States was grappling with the sudden shock of Wall Street's meltdown and the implications of that. Hardly anything I've covered in the past 122 episodes had been properly settled. And soon after the crash, the real global depression would begin the end of the 20s allowed for that exhausted equilibrium because conditions were just so that they didn't pressure nations into extreme solutions. The status quo could be continued day by day, but once the effects of the Depression were felt, that grace period would be over. All the old problems would rear their heads, 
and this time the heat was on. The center could not and would not hold, and new, painful solutions were turned to. And that'll be a big theme of next season, the dispensing of conventional wisdom. All of a sudden, desperation would be so high that anything was suddenly on the table, and the world would very painfully learn what anything meant. If you thought a good deal of this season was spent covering the colorless and the mediocre, fear not. In three months, a much more vibrant period will be our focus. Not that I mean that as a good thing, mind you. But first, a hiatus. I feel that after over two years of delivering weekly episodes that I should take a break. And what better time to do it than the end of the season? And besides, you could probably use a break too from the steady march of bad news. After all, there'll be just a lot more waiting for you when you come back. So, be sure and tune in three months from now when I plan to pick back up. And as always, thank you very much for listening.